Father, it is because of Christ that we have standing with you. And so, Lord, we know that our salvation is secure, that no one can pluck us out of your hand. Not because of our power, not because of our decision-making, not because of our greatness, but because of what your Son accomplished on the cross and your power in us through your Word. Lord, it is to your Word that we turn our hearts and minds to. We pray that you would give us truth, give us this truth in such a way that it would sanctify us. Indeed, we pray that it would save those who do not know you. Call their minds and hearts to the truth of Christ and their Give them a desire to glorify you and love you by turning to you in faith and repenting of their sins. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, it is such a joy, as always, to open our Bibles together, study the Word of God. Do you ever just pause and think about that from time to time? And we have in our hands the translated words of those who lived thousands of years ago. Over the span of a couple thousand years, they wrote these words, these words, not merely their own words, but words inspired of God, breathed out through the human authors into His perfect Word. And providentially, that Word was preserved throughout the centuries so we can read and study and know God's Word today. Truly a magnificent blessing. We get to open our Bibles then to the book of Jonah and hear from God. Jonah, as we know, was a picture of rebellious Israel, living outside of the covenant, fleeing God. They abandoned God's law. They abandoned God's work. They abandoned His calling for them to point the nations to Himself. And so God sent this prophet to demonstrate the utter absurdity of their wayward life. Living apart from God is absurd. At some point, you began to pay the price. And Jonah paid the price. What we're going to see today is the chaos, chaos and tempest, and that language, tempest, is the language from Jonah, from the storm here, the tempest of a wayward life. And we don't need any better example than our own culture. If you divorce yourself of God, if you divorce yourself of His laws, His standards, if you refute Him and go in the opposite direction, you invite upon your life a tempest, chaos, a chaotic storm of confusion and even death. On the other hand, worshiping Yahweh brings life and peace and joy. That's the lesson we learn from this, the first page of Jonah's story, the tempest of a wayward life. Well, let me read this for us today. I'll start in verse 3 and go to the end of the chapter. Very familiar. We did the overview last time, and today we're jumping more specifically into this first chapter. Jonah 1, beginning in verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down to it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. The Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. And the mariners were afraid, and each cried to his God. 
And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. The captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give us a thought that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell to Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account did this account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where did you come from? And what is your country? And what people from and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. My brother-in-law, when he first married my sister, bought a vehicle. If I remember correctly, it was a 1985 BMW 745i. And you need to know, at this time, that car was fairly new, and it was really it as far as cars go. For one thing, this sedan was incredibly powerful. That day, if your car had more than 200 horsepower, it was extremely powerful. It had all the luxurious appointments, and of course, being a BMW, it was a beautiful thing to look at. It was a beautiful car to look at and ride in. I looked at, just before this message, I wanted to see what BMW 7 Series cost today, and uh, a new one will run you about $100,000 to start with. So back in that day, even a 7- or 8-year-old BMW was a pretty awesome car, and my brother paid the price. Seemed reasonable at the time, felt like he was getting a good deal. He does what we all do when we buy new cars. We convince ourselves that this is a, the best deal ever. The dealership is basically paying us to take this car off their hands. He convinced his own heart that this is what he needs to do. But boy, did he ever pay the price. I almost never saw him driving that car. It was always in the shop some sort of O-ring or AC or faulty rim or the timing belt or the wiring to the taillights. There was always something wrong with it. And on top of that, 
It wasn't like an old beat-up Chevy where the parts are abundant and the labor is cheap. No, he had to take it to some guy named Jurgen or Hans or something. And, of course, he costs as much as a physician does to work on your car. Well, today we're looking at the presence and price of sin. This man, Jonah, is a believer who, it says, paid the fare. And boy, did he ever pay the fare. By, by some accounts, people say, some commentators said that it was possible that Jonah could have used most of his life savings. This was a long trip, a 2,000-mile trip across the Mediterranean Sea. And it could have cost him, it likely cost him a lot of money, if not all that he had. But he paid even more than that, didn't he? The price he had to pay for his sin, for his turning away from God and His Word, cost him more than he could ever imagine. Well, this is true of all sin, right? This is true anytime we try to walk away from God's Word or turn away from God's presence. It's common to all of us. We pay the price and then we continue to pay far more than we ever imagined, perhaps for some time, maybe all during that time as Jonah convinced himself uh, this is a good idea, this is a smart idea. He had all the justifications in his mind all those weeks or perhaps months leading up to the point of his departure, he probably convinced himself, this is worth it, this is valuable, it, it's something good even that I should do. But then he began to pay the price seemingly almost immediately after getting aboard the ship. Well, we're going to look at those two things. My sermon today has six points, believe it or not. So we'll be here till three in the afternoon has six points, and um, the first two are what he did. The second four are the price he paid. So what did he do? Number one, he turned from the Word of God. He turned from the Word of God. Now, I want to establish something from the very start. On one hand, it would have been very difficult for Jonah to obey God. The Assyrians were known far and wide as people who perfected the art of torture. In fact, uh, if you study much about Jonah and the Assyrians in that time, I told my family group this last week, if you study that, what you find out is the, the Assyrians were studied by a group of people recently to find out what kind of torture they employed, and that is ISIS. They look back in history to find these people who were known throughout the centuries as people who liked to torture others. And it wasn't like waterboarding or some sort of mild torture. It was something that would really prolong someone's pain and shame all the way to the point of death. They would drag it out. In fact, some people attribute the art of crucifixion, the act of crucifixion, to the Assyrians. So the Assyrians were really like 7th century B.C. Nazis. They hated people, they hated Jews, they were warmongers, they tortured people. So it would have been very easy for, jo for Jonah to say, you know, I, I'm not going to go talk to these people. These people are terrible. And you'll notice this is true for any sin, right? There's built-in justification, right? You always, that's, that's really the process James 1 describes, verses 14 and 15, this idea that, that you're building in your mind, you're giving yourself over more and more, and you're building in your mind these justifications. Well, it, it's almost, I have to do it. I mean, it's almost something that, that I must do at this point. And you work in your mind these justifications 
Jonah, I'm sure, thought to himself, there's no way I can share truth with them, share the Word with them, share God's truth and grace with these people. I mean, these people don't deserve anything but the death they've rained down on so many people for so many years. They're marked out for destruction. Why would I now try to invoke God's mercy upon them? At the same time, though, Jonah must have known as a prophet, as someone we learned last time who, who preached the Bible, who, who went around the nation of Israel, Israel and preached, he must have known that God had always had a plan and a love for the nations. Did you know that? A lot of people don't know this about the Old Testament God. Sometimes people try to separate the Old Testament God from the New Testament God as though the God in the Old Testament really didn't care about anybody but the Jews, and uh, he just wanted to judge anybody who wasn't a Jew. But that's not true. You read the Old Testament carefully, what you find is that God had a great love for the heathen, the people who didn't know Him, the people of other nations, and He commanded His people of covenant to take these truths these truths to the, na to the nations. So even if on one hand it would have been easy for Jonah to justify his sin, on the other hand, it should not have been unusual for him to hear the Word of God telling him to take truth, His truth, His grace, to the other nations. Let me give you a few examples in 1 Chronicles. These are verses all that Jonah would have understood. 1 Chronicles 16, 23, Sing unto the Lord all the earth, show forth from day to day His salvation. Declare His glory among the nations, His marvelous, His marvelous truth among all nations. Psalm 69, a psalm of David, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Show forth His salvation. goes on to say, declare His glory to the nations, His wonders among all peoples. Psalm 18, Therefore I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the heathen, and sing praises to your name. In other words, I'm going to be among heathen people, among those who don't know you, and non-Jewish people who worship false gods, and I'm going to proclaim your name. Isaiah mentioned that God had formed the people of Israel for Himself that they would show forth His praise. Even back at the beginning of the covenant, God repeated over and over the idea that He did not choose the Israelites because they were strong or powerful or more righteous than others or better than any other nations. He says in Deuteronomy Chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I've taught you statutes and ordinances, even as the Lord my God commanded me. You should do so in the land which you go to possess this. Keep therefore and do them, for this is your wisdom and your understanding in view of the nations who shall hear these statutes. How are they going to hear the statutes? The people of Israel are supposed to tell them. They'll hear these statutes and say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. It was very clear from the beginning, God wanted His people to show forth His praise. God wanted to take the truths that He gave the people of Israel in covenant form and form that nation. He wanted them to take those truths and take them to the nations. Now, Jonah should have known this. He likely would have had much of these, many of these verses memorized. He knew this. It was all in his head, yet he just simply didn't want to do it. Now, maybe you feel the same way about your own witnessing or evangelism. 
You know you should. You know it's there. You know the command is there. Pastor John even preached a five-sermon series on sharing Christ, and, and you know you should do it or should do it more, and, and yet you always find yourself with justification, always trying to excuse yourself, let yourself off the, off the hook. You know, maybe it's not witnessing or evangelism. Maybe, maybe it's something else. Maybe it's some other sin. You know what's right, but you don't do what's right. Instead, you do what was wrong. Jonah knew God had a soft spot in his heart for the nations. In fact, there at the end of the book, Jonah's preached, revival had happened, many people were saved. And he says in verse 2, essentially, I knew this would happen. I knew you would have mercy and save people and they would glorify you. You see, Jonah knew this. Jonah knew of God's grace toward the nations. He knew about it. He professed it. He knew what God's heart was, and yet he rebelled. He turned away from what God had declared in His Word. If uh, some of you have gotten to know me a little bit, and uh, you know that I come from a uh, very long lineage of preachers. My dad was a preacher. His two brothers were both preachers. His sister married a preacher. His dad was a preacher, and his granddad was a preacher. A lot of preachers in my family. Uh, That doesn't mean, of course, that any one of us are perfect. My grandfather, sort of at the height of his career, uh, decided that he would leave his wife, run off with his secretary, move to a different state, and divorce. It probably led to the early death of my grandmother. Uh, She had some mental stuff toward the end of her life. Praise be to God, he repented before he died. He repented, he came back to the Lord. In fact, he went around and sent letters to all the churches he had ever served in. In fact, he went to his seminary and preached a sermon or at least gave a testimony asking their forgiveness in front of a couple thousand people. He did everything he could to get these things right and, and died a man who was forgiven and who had moved on with his life. Of course, as a young minister, I would ask him, Granddad, now why did you do this? Tell me the process so that I can guard against it. What was the process? And he always told me the same thing. He said, it always began when I began to turn away from the Bible. When I began to stop reading the Bible in the morning, when I began to take, instead of new sermons and working through Scripture and finding out and delivering this to the people, I would take old sermons and just dust them off and re-preach them. When I I began to stop relishing in the truth of God's Word and memorizing and singing it and thinking about it, that's when it all began. He'd tell me over a period of seven years, as he turned away from the Word of God, he began to turn away from God Himself and delve into His imagination and ultimately, in reality, in sin. Look there at verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is a common phrase when it comes to prophets. Read these books carefully. You realize the word word of God comes to them. It comes to them powerfully. And uh, you understand that it comes to them, the prophets and the apostles, not to us. Uh, We're not the authorized writers of Scripture. God has designated a certain group of people, less than 50 people, to write Scripture and With them, He authorized them and gave them, breathed through them the Word of God. Many times that uh, Scripture came to them with signs and wonders. Uh, 
That's why we don't seek for signs and wonders today. This is something that came with the writing of the Word of God. It doesn't mean that God can't work miracles or can't heal people today, but it does mean that this was a very special time, and, and God speaking to Jonah like this is unique to Jonah and the pro other prophets and the apostles. And it would have come to him with great force and great power. Jonah was authorized. He was tested. His words were validated by the people of God. And God spoke to Jonah. The Word of God came to him and told him to arise and call out, meaning call out the sin, call out the truth, call out to the people of Nineveh the truth of Yahweh. Well, in spite of the fact that we're not prophets and we don't receive the Word of God like Jonah did, the Word of God should have the same impact on us, shouldn't it? We should be enamored that this is truth, that God has spoken, that His Word has been put down for us and preserved through the centuries. It's amazing. You know, we have now over 50,000 manuscripts of the Bible. Did you know the next closest ancient document is Homer's Iliad, and they only have 300 manuscripts? So we have these 40,000 manuscripts to confirm that what was, what was originally put down and then we take those manuscripts and we translate them into the various languages such as English, and we can know the Word of God. It's an absolutely amazing thing. God preserved His Word through the centuries. It's an amazing thing that God gives us His Word. I wonder if Jonah maybe was sort of tired or perhaps accustomed to hearing the word of the Lord. And God had used him in the past. God had spoken to, through Jonah to the people, to people of Israel in the past. God had used him. He had spoken his word to Jonah. And perhaps Jonah was just like, well, you know, I mean, I know what this is like. This is the same old, same old. I mean, I hear it all the time. Maybe I can just let this one go. And I, I just think maybe perhaps we do the same thing. We take it for granted. We come into the church and we sing the Bible, and we read the Bible, and we listen to the Bible preached, and we're just really not impacted at all by it. We walk away the same people we were when we walked in. Maybe that's what happened to Jonah. he grown cold to the Word of God. He turned away from God's Word. His heart had grown cold. So that's the first thing. He turned from the Word of God. Secondly, he turned from the presence of God. Now, just to be clear, no one can get away from the presence of God. He is omnipresent. He is in and through and above over all creation. You may be able to escape what you think is God, but He's there all along. Look at what it says in verse 3, Jonah rose to flee, from, flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare, went down into it to go with him to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the Jews believed in God's omnipresence. They did not think that God just lived in Israel, and that was it, and you could just get out of Israel, you can get away from God. They believe just as we do. In fact, it's their understanding that is the basis for our own Christian understanding of God's omnipresence. So what does this mean? Well, for one, it means that he stopped thinking biblically. He just stopped analyzing his, his thoughts and thinking through this. Is this, a, is this a logical, biblical thought to think that I can actually get on a ship and go away? I mean, David had 
sung many times. I think it's Psalm 139. David says, even if I go to the uttermost parts of the sea, you are there. And he had, just, had he just paused and thought for a moment, I can't get away from the presence of God. But he didn't. He stopped thinking biblically. Yeah, maybe that theology of God's omnipresence was there in the back of his mind, but he stopped operating on the basis of that truth. Again, I think we, tr we do this when we sin. We just sort of forget about God's presence. We sort of just neglect or, or ignore the fact that God is there with us. He's seeing everything. He knows everything. He's, he's there with us. And he's trying to get away from the Word of God. He's trying to get away from the presence of God because in his mind, maybe if I step away from that present, that, that piercing command, that piercing truth will not have that impact on me. Maybe I change some things around, change my location, move to a different place. Don't we do this? Maybe if I get a new spouse, my marriage will be better. Maybe if I get a new job, maybe if I move back to the mainland, maybe if I get away from this or that, things will be better for me. And really, you need to look at your own heart. You can't get away from your own heart. You can't get away from God. Remember that Lord of the Rings trilogy? There's poor little Frodo Baggins. He's taking that ring to go be destroyed, and he wanted to give it up many times. He wanted to give it up, but there was that command from Gandalf. He's to take that ring up to the mountain and throw it in. No matter how badly he wanted to abandon that journey, he could not. No matter how far off course he seemed to get, he always seemed to find himself back on the right course. Representatively, that's where God wanted him. Poor little Jonah. He desperately wanted to get away from God. He wanted to avoid this command. He wanted to avoid this commission that God had given him, but he couldn't. You know where Tarshish is? Probably Spain. So Nineveh is basically Mosul, Iraq. So about 400 miles inland eastward from the Mediterranean Sea. Spain is 2,000 miles across the Mediterranean Sea, Mediterranean sea, in fact, on the other side of the Mediterranean, on the other end of the Mediterranean. He's trying to go in the opposite direction. He was hustling away as fast as he could in the opposite direction. But there was that nagging call of God. And as it turned out, that was his salvation and the salvation of the people of, of Nineveh. In all that activity, buying his tickets, hustling around the port city, trying to find a way to avoid the call of God, it was a poor substitute for simple obedience. That's the way you get yourself back on track, isn't it? Some of you probably have found yourself, maybe you're down in Joppa right now. Maybe you've even already paid the fare. You're trying to get away from God. You're trying to avoid what God has for you. You're trying to get away from God's Word and God's truth and God's presence. You're trying to get away from it somehow. Maybe you could possibly get away from it. But there's that nagging thought. Simple obedience is the answer. Just obey what God has to say. Well, what's the result? What's the result in Jonah's life as he tried to flee the Word of God and the presence of God? Number three, he lost divine perspective. He lost divine perspective. That is to say, he lost discernment. 
Some years ago, we studied the book of Philippians. We learned about discernment. Discernment is a biblical virtue that all Christians are called to. It's not something that only a few special, really smart Christians have. Yes, there may be some who are more gifted in knowledge, but in terms of discernment, all Christians are called to be a discerning Christian. And the way we become discerning is that we handle the Word of God. We open up the Bible. We, we study the truth. We study what's right so that we can spot what is wrong or perhaps even what is almost right. As you study the Word of God, you become more and more discerning. But when you abandon the Word of God, things become more and more foggy. Your discernment goes down. You, you can't make sense. You start making foolish decisions. You can ask any counselor. If someone is deeply involved in, in sin, quite often their ability to discern is faltered. Guilt, the pain, the realization that you're doing something wrong, you're trying to hide, you're trying to cover things up, that overwhelms you. Some years ago, there was a fellow in our church, and uh, his wife came to me, and she said, Pastor John, I need your advice. She said, my husband is obsessed with buying weapons. And of course, like a real man, I said, oh, that's okay. Don't worry about that. <laughs> she said, no, it's, it's, it's like really bad, and we're going into major debt. He owns over 100 guns. And he told me the other day, we have over a million rounds of ammunition. And I said, well, what's his reasoning? Why, is he, why does he tell you he's doing this? He said, she said, she, he is convinced that pretty soon he's going to be in a fight, David Koresh style, with the U.S. government. He thinks they're going to do something, and he's going to be in a shootout with them. And she says, I'm worried about him. Now, I'd never gotten, gotten this. As a young pastor, I'd never heard anything like this in my life. So I picked up the phone. I called one of my mentors, Greg Waybright. I said, Greg, uh, what in the world, man? What do, I, what do I do this about this? He said, ah, he's probably having an affair. I said, what? He said, yeah, maybe not. He said, but I'd sniff around. I bet he's sleeping with someone. I said, why do you say that? He said, because I've seen this, and not just the gun thing, but other things. When someone is perpetually covering up and hiding and moving away from their sin, their, their, their mind gets twisted around hiding and covering up, and they know that at any moment they might be caught. Sure enough, I found out this guy was sleeping with his secretary. Your mind gets messed up the deeper you go into sin. Here is Jonah. He is a prophet of God. He's someone who's supposed to know the truth. He's abandoned God. He's abandoned the Word of God. And now he's just not thinking clearly. Really, we see this throughout the whole book of Jonah. This guy does not think clearly. He's a man in sin. He's lost divine perspective. Verse 3 again, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. How could you even think you could get away from the presence of the Lord, Jonah? You know doctrine. You're a preacher. Went to Joppa, found a ship, paid a fare, went into it and left. Again, he's probably reasoning his mind. Hey, there's a boat going the other way. I happen to have the money. It's an open door. Maybe it's an open door. Maybe God's telling me something through this open door. I'll just hop on the ship. Even though God's Word says this, 
I could do this. Now, oftentimes God does do things, and the open door is some sort of confirmation, but it's not going to be a confirmation against truth, against good thinking, against the Word of God. So as Jonah began to get into sin, he began to lose his ability to discern. He began to lose divine perspective, and that's what happens to us. When you get deeper and deeper into sin, you lose divine perspective. You lose your discernment. Number four, what else did he lose? He lost the power of a clean conscience. What do you think Jonah was thinking as he loaded up his stuff onto the boat? He's probably in a flurry of activity, getting all his things together, making the necessary purchases that he knew would be necessary for a long trip across the Mediterranean. Now, it seems like because they were trying to row back to shore, it seems like the storm hit pretty quickly after they set sail. This mighty tempest comes upon the sea. The ship seems like it's going to break in two, verse 4. And what does Jonah do in verse 5? Then the mariners were afraid. Each cried to his God. They hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down to the inner part of the ship and had lain down, and he was fast asleep. This is strange, but I think it can be explained by simply that people react differently to stress. Some people become insomniacs. They can't go to sleep. Some people become narcoleptic. They have to sleep. They can't do anything but sleep. They, they avoid it. And, of course, some people do that chemically. They've got all this stress. They've got all this pressure. Maybe they're even in, involved in some sort of sin, and so they, they, they drink or they head to some sort of other kind of bottle and start taking pills or something to avoid, to, to escape reality. I think that's where Jonah was. I think Jonah was asleep because he was trying to escape. That's how he responded to his stress. He was fast asleep. He was in a deep sleep. That's the way he dealt with a guilty conscience. You know, all the prophets in some way are a shadow of Jesus. They were incomplete. They were fuzzy. They were a sinful version of the real thing. Remember how I mentioned last time Jonah, the book of Jonah is all about opposites. Jonah went in the opposite way. He was the opposite kind of man. The people of God were the opposite kind of people. The Nineveh, the Ninevites, in fact, were the ones that followed God, and so that was the opposite for them. We're going to learn this a little later. Jonah spent three days because of disobedience in the belly of a fish. Jesus, of course, we'll find out, spent three days under because of obedience. And I think this is much of the same picture. He's asleep, not the same reason Jesus was asleep during the storm in the boat. Jesus was asleep because of the confidence in God, His trusting in God, His carrying out everything that God had told him. He had a clean conscience. Jonah went to sleep to avoid thought. He fled the Lord, and as it started to bother him, he just went underneath and went to sleep. But even in your sleep, you can't run away from God. Jonah's on that ship, but he's still sinking, pun intended, in sin. So he just sleeps, but this fitful sleep ends up being disrupted by the captain of the boat, who himself was a pagan, still knew that this was unethical, something wrong was going on. 
The reformer Martin Luther commented on this passage that the whole world had grown too small for Jonah to escape the Lord, and in feeling that chastising gaze of God, I am sure of it, caused him to seek shelter, the shelter of sleep. But the Lord chastens those whom He loves, and God was chastening Jonah. He was pursuing Jonah. I want to show you something before we move to the next point. Almost uh, humorous here. What does God say up in verse 1 to Jonah? He says, arise, go to Nineveh, call out. Just think of those two verbs, arise, call out. This is God's word to Jonah, arise, call out. Now look down in verse 6. So the captain came down and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out. So just put this in your mind. Jonah's down there trying to avoid God, trying to avoid God's word, and he is shaken awake by someone yelling God's word in his face. Arise, call out. Can you imagine Jonah thinking he could get away from God and someone's screaming God's word in his face? Now, ladies, don't do this to your husbands. When we fail, don't try to wake us up yelling God's word in us. And here's Jonah trying to avoid it, and he can't avoid it. Even a pagan sailor is shouting God's word to him inadvertently. The Bible says in Proverbs 28:1, the wicked flees even when no one is pursuing. The captain is just asking a question. He has no idea. And Jonah realizes God is after him. He lost comfort in a clean conscience. Some of you live like that. You have a dirty conscience. You know how you're living. You're praying you don't get caught. You hope no one finds out about your guilty pleasure. The verse goes on in Proverbs and says, The righteous are bold as a lion. If you live rightly before God, there's a boldness. There's a clean conscience. Jonah had lost that. Number five, he lost his identity. Look down there at verse 7 8. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. Incidentally, uh, the Jews would cast lots, but very early in the Jewish life, uh, God revealed to them that He was in charge of the casting of lots. So the way they would cast lots as Jews was not a hope in some sort of God of chance or, or you know, some sort of other God. It was understanding that God was completely sovereign over everything. These are pagans. These, they don't think like that. They're just casting lots in hopes that some other god, some pagan god, will direct them in what to do. And they would take these sticks and they would throw these sticks down and the one that was marked would fall nearest the, would fall nearest the person and that person would be the one that was chosen. So that's essentially uh, most likely what they did. They threw these lots down on the, on the deck of the ship and uh, the one that was marked fell near Jonah. They cast lots and a lot fell on Jonah. They said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us, what is your occupation, what did you come from, what is your country, and of what people are you? And of course, God is indeed sovereign. The lot falls to him, and they began to ask him questions. Um, they ask him his ethnicity, what God he serves, ask him what he does for a living, and how does he respond? Verse Verses 9 and 10, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And the men were exceedingly afraid, said to him, 
What is this that you have done? For the men knew he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And he responds by telling them, I'm a Jew, I'm a Hebrew, and I'm from Israel, therefore I serve Yahweh, who created everything. He says they knew he was fleeing, so he must have said something else, that he was fleeing from God. You notice what Jonah didn't mention, by the way, was his occupation. Probably a little embarrassed about that at this point. Interesting, 700 years later, there was another man of God chosen by Jesus. He was on another boat in the Mediterranean that was doomed. This was the Apostle Paul on a boat on his way to Rome. The boat is swaying back and forth. They're throwing stuff over the board just like they, overboard just like they did with Jonah. The difference was Paul is in the very center of God's will, and he is bold. And he tells them that though the ship is going to be lost, none of them will die. That's exactly what happened. Jonah was the opposite. He was feeble. He was weak. He was puny. He was angry with God, unable to command the situation, unable to control his circumstances, he lost all confidence and boldness, forgot who he was, avoided what God's call was upon him, lost his identity. Number six, last point, he lost hope. He lost hope. Verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased its raging. Now, just an aside here, it goes on to say that they made sacrifices to God. We don't know exactly the condition of their souls. It'd be nice, and perhaps... The people who first read Jonah would understand that, the way it describes it there as a description of salvation, and that may, may be true. I don't think it's central to the point, but these people definitely had a respect for God that even the prophet of God didn't at this point. Again, a story of opposites. And Jonah, at this point, did not know that God had appointed a fish. He didn't know anything. In fact, what we could say at this point is Jonah had become suicidal. He was so mad at God, he was so frustrated with the circumstances, he was so tired of the whole thing, he just wanted to die. We find him here again later on in this book. He just wanted to die. Suicidal thoughts range from simply having a thought that this world would be better without me to actually contemplating an act. You really get an idea of Jonah's condition. He now knows he's to die. He wants to commit suicide. He wants to die. He's got no conscience, no identity, no clarity, no truth. He's tried to avoid God all along. He'd rather just die. And I would just say, if you've traveled down that road, maybe you're even down that road right now, again, the simple answer is repentance and faith. Talk to someone. They'll show you what truth is to help you get a grip on reality. That's what Jonah needed, a grip on reality, on truth, the truth of God's Word, the truth of his own identity, his calling, 
Like Jonah, all these thoughts rage in his head. Why has God done this to me? Why has God made me be a, an evangelist to these wicked people? Why is God doing this? He's angry. He doesn't know the Word of God. He's tried to flee God. And you might be thinking, well, my sin's not going to take me that far. I'm sure Jonah had no intent when he was buying the ticket for the boat ride of committing suicide. That, that thought didn't enter his head. I'm sure Jonah, when he laid his head down to go to sleep at the bottom of that boat, he, he didn't think when he woke up he would very quickly be wanting to die. That's what happens when you follow the path of sin. You lose all these things and you eventually grow angry and frustrated so much so that you're willing to give up life. God perhaps, in fact, I believe He brought Jonah all the way down this path, not once, but a second time we'll see in this book, so that Jonah would eventually repent. And that's exactly what He wants us to do. Even if you're not despairing for your life, even if you're not, haven't gone very far down this path in your sin, the simple answer is to come back to the Lord, repent of your sin, follow the truth. But the Lord didn't let Jonah go through it, didn't go through death at this point. But things would get worse. I don't know that death is probably better than being stuck in the middle of a fish for a few days. But we'll look at that next time. All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless us with a desire to never try to flee you, your word, your truth, may we live in submission to it. And so, Lord, you can develop in us an understanding, a good, clean conscience, who we are in you, our identity. And, Lord, you can fill us with your hope. Lord, there was so much hope and so much joy that Jonah could have experienced. This whole story could have been a story of Jonah's joy and Jonah's Wonderful ministerial success. But Jonah was here to picture the failure of the people of Israel in that day and even our own failures. So as we read this book, Lord, may we be reminded even of our small, quote-unquote, small sins that turning from you is always a disastrous route to take. Help us to repent and follow you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, if you'll stand with me for a benediction, then you can be dismissed. Now may we go empowered and emboldened by God's Word to turn against the desires to sin that we may not give Satan even a foothold in our hearts so that we can glorify God our Father all the days of our lives. Amen. Amen.